We'd like a word. About having a break from the mayhem. We Ooh, both, like that idea. Yeah, we both like a bit of you know, rioting, destruction, murder, sneakiness. But literary, 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 yeah. literary. Just, just, yeah. just to qualify that. Reading about it and writing about it. In case there's any police officers listening. Yeah. But it's nice to have a break from it too. And that's what we'll be doing now. I'm talking about that. And I should say, I'm Paul Waters. I'm Stephen Golden. And with us today, very happy, we've got Helen Cullen, who is the author of The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, which I have read and very much enjoyed. And there are lots of funny little quirky things in it, which we'll be talking about. But I suppose I want to, I guess, challenge what we're actually doing here. So we're having a break from the mayhem. And we had a question in from a listener. And this is for you, Helen. This is from Tim Footman. And he says, one reviewer has identified your book as part of a literary trend known as uplit. Can you read these words without getting a little bit sick in the back of your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Tim. Let's find out. Oh, well, thank you, Tim. And thank you both for having me. It's lovely to be here. I guess I suppose the term uplit seems to have come into vogue maybe in the last year and um, has been linked to my book and some other books. But I'm not sure if it really means that much to people other than being maybe a signifier that we're not going to be hearing about mayhem or murder or destruction or the, the worst of the human condition in this book. Fly-blown corpses, mm. beheadings. Exactly. Zombies. Zombie. Yeah. yeah, if I see another, if I never see another zombie, I'll... There's, yeah, there's none of that in my so book. I think real life is scary enough without imagining these things. So for me, I think what people responded to in terms of it feeling like an uplifting book, even though at the heart of it it's a very melancholy story, is just I think it avoids some of those extremities of the human condition and I think harks back to a different time when before the digital age where that I think we feel a little bit nostalgic for us. So people I think enjoyed entering into that world of a slightly different time where things maybe felt a bit simpler even though they weren't when we were living through it. It's mm. probably the way we remember it, but I think people did enjoy being back in that time. The book set sort of 1989, 1990s. This so is your book. This yeah, is set. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of pre the explosion of the internet and all that came with it. Oh, yes, you're avoiding mobile phones. And the, my book would have been a very short book if um, the protagonist was able to Google <laughs> so, yeah. so, would, so would every horror film, wouldn't it? Well, like, okay, oh, I um, managed to get the police. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, that's a that's a very good uh, time for us to actually hear what the book's about because it's I, I guess it's a search, and right enough if you could search more easily, then that would shorten it a lot. But tell us what it's about. Um, so the book is set in East London in the Dead Letters Depot, which is a fantastic. Setting the dead letters, Capo. <laughs> oh, so William Wolfe is a letter detective. So he spends his days solving the mysteries of all the letters and parcels that get lost in the postal system. And I'd actually managed to write the whole first draft of this novel before I realised that this was a real thing. And there what? actually are, yes, you dead just letters depots. Yeah, I thought I thought I had actually invented this place where all of the lost mail would end up. But actually, there's a really massive one in Belfast and called the it, Mail Return Centre. And is it on Tomb Street? Uh, no, on Shoreditch High Street. You mean? No, yeah. no. Well, there's there is a postal place on Tomb oh. Street in Belfast. Oh, I'm not sure what street it's on, but and it's I, I but it's definitely in Belfast. One. Tomb Street. Tomb Street. What sort of happy place is that? It's if we're going to have a dead letter place. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And it seems there are 300 of these letter detectives and this is their job. I opened up the Guardian newspaper one day and there was an interview with a letter detective. And I didn't know if I was delighted that this was a real thing and excited to read about it or horrified that, um, <laughs> you know, that this really existed. So did you I have to then, product of you know, study it and think... And no, be I, accurate then, or did you just No, I completely ignored it Excellent. because um, right. I just way. thought if I was actually, I mean, I'd already gone so far into, into the world of the book that it was already pretty written and, and it existed in my mind in a totally complete way. So I just decided I was going to pretend I didn't know the other one existed and just keep going with the fictional world. But now that I know a little bit more about it, I'm pleased to say that there are an awful lot more functioning and productive 
than the shower of useless detectives that are operating. <laughs> I think they, they get, you know, suspect devices, <laughs> suspected letter bombs as well. Oh, yeah. To the one that's what they get directed to. And that, and I think that's partly why they won't let me in, because I've been dying to go and visit and meet a real life leisure detective. But so far, I haven't been able to get inside the real building. But in um, but in our fictional Dead Letters Depot, William is uh, going about spot solving all of these mysteries. And it was sort of unwittingly a great gift to give myself as a writer, because while you're working on the whole big narrative arc of the story, you c- I could then go off on these little, you know, adventures with the letters that showed up in the demo in the depot, because people could be writing to anyone about anything and anything could show up there. So people send the strangest paraphernalia through the post and they often end up in the depot. So like if the address is incomplete or something exactly, like that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a department, isn't there, that, that answers letters to Santa to Father Christmas. I'm pretty sure there is one. Yeah, where where kids write letters to Father Christmas, and they write letters back, or they they send the letters. Yeah, back yeah, yeah. I think you're right. But, but well, but, except for the ones that Santa obviously answers himself. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. yeah. These, these are the ones that have got, are misplaced. got lost. Yeah. Exactly. You know, obviously. Yeah. So, so oh, they're, why don't they just forward them. Santa's instructions? Of course. Yeah. Why why don't yeah. they just forward them to Santa then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> they should do, but Santa is very busy. Exactly. It's a busy time of year. Probably busy depends on the time of year. year. If I they think get it's a bit just late, an yeah. extension of the Lapland division. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Fair enough. And uh, are they, well, tell us about some of the letters. Um, so um, there were all sorts of letters that show up in the post. And I think it was it was actually when people sometimes ask me about, you know, how much of your own life ended up in the book. It was probably through the letters where that happened the most. Like, for example, mm. when I was um, when I went to see the amazing David Bowie exhibition in the V&A. And I remember reading about how he had when he was writing letter uh, lyrics, he would often cut up magazines and newspapers and put all the words into a bag and shake them up and just draw them out at random to make up the lyrics for some of the songs. And I think he called it a verbalizer. But actually, someone's told me since that I've that wrong, even though that's what I called it in the book. So I don't know what it was actually called, but something of that ilk. So when I was going home the tube that night, then I wrote one of the letters that ended up in the depot was from a girl who hadn't been able to afford to buy buy her new boyfriend a birthday present but so she'd made him a verbalizer and um had posted it to him so when william opens up the parcel in the depot all these thousands of letters oh, yeah. words yeah. fall out onto the desk nice. so you know things like that all would show up there then that i had kind of acquired little I'm gonna bits give of, here's a nice one yeah. this is um so william's sitting at his desk uh, and he's sorting through a new bundle destined for the supernatural division. So there's a letter for Godot, one for the fairy godmother of Lucy Sparrow, and then a tired old envelope addressed in blue colouring pencil to the ringmaster of the circus. And he opens this and there's a sheet of grey paper that was almost as fine as tissue and began to read. Dear ringmaster of the circus, my name is Harvey and I am ten and three quarters years old. You might think I'm younger than that because I'm a bit small, but I am really... But really, but I really am almost 11. I might already even be that age before you read my letter. So maybe I shouldn't have, I should have just said, that's how old I am. But I didn't want to fib. <laughs> and um, he talks about how he's, you know, very keen to join the circus. And I haven't even been inside the circus. But every year I watch you from the bridge bringing all the animals off the trailers. And I know everyone you've got. The elephant is my favourite, but I would treat them all the same. I'm not even frightened of the lion, but I don't, but don't fancy feeding him. Being my first job, that would be okay with you. I'm stronger than other 10, nearly 11-year-olds because one of my jobs at home is bringing in the firewood and it's made me tough, so I'm good for lifting and carrying. I'm not a fussy eater and don't need much feeding. Spuds give me cramps, but I'll eat them if that's all there is. <laughs> and and he goes on and uh, he says, coming to the end of his letter, I'll keep my bag packed in case you need me so I'm ready to run if you send a note to my nan's house. Please don't come to my house because my dad wouldn't like it. There's no ma'am to notice me gone, though, so don't worry about that. Thanks very much, Mr Ringmaster. I promise I'll do my best if you'll have me. From Harvey Lawless. So that's one of the letters that ends up Mm. in the dead lost letter place. Exactly. So what do they do with them? Um, well, the the detectives are the only people who are legally allowed open post. So just as you said earlier, they would look through the letters and see could they find clues that would either tell them where the letter came from, where the parcel came from, or what was its ultimate destination. And they would try and find help it find its way to where it came from. So you'll see so throughout the book, William goes in some of these little adventures. Really special parcels get elevated to their personal care. So sometimes they would take 
take apart something that a, a mystery they had solved and bring it to where it was intended to go so that it didn't get lost in the bowels of again. the system <laughs> again. Um, but through the course of his travels, then he starts discovering these letters that have been written to by a woman to her great love that she's never met. And it's like to my great love. Exactly. And so she kind of sends these letters like messages in a bottle where she's trying to work out all her own ideas about love and what she might want from love in her life. And she's writing them from that sort of supremely intimate private place of thinking no one will ever read them. So she posts them off into a letterbox with just to my great love written on the envelope and they end up in William's desk. So even though he is married and thought he had already met his great love a long time before that, he starts thinking that maybe she could be writing to him without having ever met him. So he she's kind of cheating, though, because together. she's not actually addressing him to anyone. No, but she's messing with the system. Well, so but something about the letters speaks to him and he starts believing that maybe they're for him. But obviously, the reason why he's open to that is a product of the situation that he's in. And something that I really wanted to explore was this juxtaposition I think we have between the way romantic love is portrayed in music and in art and in television and films and literature but the pragmatic reality that most of us face with sustaining relationships over a long period of time. Mm. So when I'd first come up with this idea of which began with this woman writing these letters and um, thinking that someone was going to find them I didn't want it to be so sweet as a ledger detective would find the letters work out the clues go find her and they live happily ever after because if I was going to write about love I wanted it to feel even though it was in this fantastical setting and did have this kind of touch of magical realism about it, that it would feel like it could be a contemporary real life love story unfolding. Um, So I gave him this fractured, dysfunctional marriage that we still can be optimistic for. So I gave him that challenge of thinking about should he be at home trying to resolve things with a woman he had See, I was thinking at first... Is this like that song, you know, do you well like pina coladas and walking home in the rain and all that <laughs> oh, yeah, stuff? You thought and that then his wife it was, was my be... own lovely lady. <laughs> sick, sick. Yeah. And and like somehow it was her or something like that. Spoiler alert, it's not her. <laughs> it's not as lame as that. I know. A lot of people <laughs> thought that when they, well, they said that it's the same thing. Yeah, that they were worried that's where it was going to go. Oh, yeah. That after all this time, he would realise that it was really his wife he'd been writing to. But I'm pleased to say... <laughs> That is not oh, what was happening. So <laughs> no, it, it's quite like, it, it, there's something about that sort of slightly offbeat romancing as well. I mean, because an, another book that got a lot of accolades um, was Ele- Eleanor Oliphant. Mm. And it's kind of, it's a very different book, mm. very different thing. But again, it's got that sort of off-kilter, well, in her case, almost a stalker <laughs> thing going on, isn't it? All the way through it. Again, about someone trying to figure out whether someone loves them or not, or whether someone whether they've got an, a, a relationship with the person that they're sort of fixating on, yeah, uh, that's that's quite an interesting theme. And and you know, for for people to go around and talk about being uplit and things like that, and there's some quite, I won't say dark, but there's some quite disturbing views of the human psyche in amongst this. But as you saw with the letter we saw just now from from the the lad of the circus, you've got these lovely little sort of pops every so often these lovely little nostalgic moments these lovely little humorous moments these lovely little charming moments that that make it comfortable <laughs> you know do you know what i mean it's um oh well i'm glad i'm glad you i'm glad you think so it's, it's not a, it's um, not a sad or miserable book i mean that's the thing no, i'm trying it, to get across here it's yeah. not miserable but i think that a lot of people have said to me that they were really affected by watching the breakdown of his marriage mm. yeah i was a bit you know that it really kind of touched a nerve especially mm. people who maybe have gone through something similar you know and and an amazing thing happened to me where um when i when i was writing the book before, long before I ever thought it was ever something that was going to get published, I was in a writing class and one of the men in my group said that he'd read this scene between Claire and William where they had this awful row, one of those rows that goes on all through the night and you don't know if you'll make it to the morning. And he got so upset thinking about how, cl- how he would feel if he lost his wife that he woke her up in the middle of the night to tell her how much he loved her because he couldn't remember the last time yeah. he told her. And I was like, okay, we're onto something here. Mm. <laughs> you know, if I have men waking up their wives in the middle of the night to show, to show them that they're appreciated. And what happened? Did she say, <laughs> yeah, thank she, you for She probably thought he was having an affair. She rolled, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's my first thought. She rolls over and thinks, why is he saying that? This is very <laughs> suspicious. Um, but so I think, so I definitely tried not to pull any punches in terms of 
uh, watching their breakdown. And um, but I think we meet them at a point where it's all is not lost in the sense that they're very much on the brink of the cliff. But there is still hope that they may be if they can find a way of talking to each other again that um you know they may be able to reconcile if if that's yeah, it's what good ha- you because know that's that that what they want it could go this way could go that way yeah. that is maintained yeah. here's a bit um i don't know if it's exactly the bit that you're talking about but she's thinking let's have a break and he's saying oh no let's work it out <laughs> and and then he's thinking about you know memories of her when she's asleep and Anyway, happy memories of the past. And then he said, now he realised with a wave of remorse how much their faces had aged since they met aged 21 and 22. The work of 14 years looked like more. Their youth had fallen between the floorboards of their flat while they were looking elsewhere. Uh, which I quite I like that. That's a really nice line. Yeah. A, oh, I hate it when people write good lines like that. <laughs> yeah. I haven't written. Yeah. And it's it's yeah it's and there's good um, you know dialogue and that that seems very uh, real mm. and sad. Yeah. So I, I didn't feel uplifted by that, <laughs> <laughs> but I but, thought it was very good. No, and actually, I suppose in the same way that we get this kind of perverse pleasure from listening to sad songs, I mean, mm. my favourite band in the whole world are The Cure, which mm-hmm. feature prominently in the book. I was going to say, there's a lot of music in the book. Yeah, there, there is. A lot of music and, in the book. I mean, I'd like to think that people can read these, you know, so those, those scenes with, with William and his wife and get the same sort of um, rush that you get from listening to a Cure song where it actually makes you feel better to know that other people have felt things that you felt or to be articulating for you some of the kind of sadness or melancholy you felt in your life. So, um, I mean, I, I take so much pleasure out of sad songs, so I guess maybe it was so inevitable the, I was going to write a sad They're book. the perfect band for this, because the, the <laughs> joy of Robert Smith is that you could give him the happiest song in the world to sing and he'll still make it sound sad. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. I mean, oh, what they great at Glastonbury this year. Yeah. Oh, my God, what they great at Glastonbury this year. But also, he writes, but at the same time, he's writing about the saddest things in the world but with these amazing happy pop melodies. So maybe that's, maybe that, yeah, I like that, my book being compared in that way. And you never have a bad hair day compared to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he works at that. He works at that. But, I mean, the Smiths are the same, aren't they? I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the joy of the Smiths. Girlfriend in a coat. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. The, the joy of the Smiths yeah. was that the Happy pop riffs, you know, Johnny Moore on the back, yeah. da, 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 know, and, and Morrissey whinging away in the microphone in the foreground. It's it's that juxtaposition of the happy and sad, yeah. which is what life is like, of course. Helen, will you read a bit from The Lost Letters of William Wolfe? Yes, happily. Um, I think I'll read from the beginning Grant? so that people can get a sense of this world. I'll have operating. a French fancy while you're... <laughs> yeah, please do. Enjoy that. yourself. Or biscuits. Don't Sit put back, your finger relax. in it this time. Yeah. He put his finger in the last one. He was sitting there trying to broadcast with a French fancy <laughs> sort of transfixed on his finger. I know, weird. Huh? The hazards of broadcasting. Um, so the, the whole novel begins with an epigraph from a John Donne poem. Uh, that reads, more than kisses, letters mingle souls. And then we begin. Lost letters have only one hope for survival. If they are caught between two worlds, with an unclear destination and no address of sender, the lucky ones are redirected to the dead letters depot in East London for a final chance of redemption. Inside the damp, rising walls of a converted tea factory, letter detectives spend their days solving mysteries. Missing postcodes, illegible handwriting, rain-smudged ink, lost address labels, torn packages, forgotten street names. They are all culprits in the occurrence of missed birthdays, unknown test results, bruised hearts, unaccepted invitations, silenced confessions, unpaid bills and unanswered prayers. Instead of longed-for missives, disappointment floods postboxes from Land's End to Dunnet Head. Hope fades a little more every day when doorbells don't chime and doormats don't thud. William Wolfe had worked as a letter detective for 11 years. He was one of an army of 30, having inherited his position from his beloved uncle Archie. Almost every Friday throughout William's childhood, Archie, clad in a lime green leather jacket, wrote his yellow Honda Daydream 305 over for tea, eager to share fish and chips doused in salt and vinegar and tales of the treasures rescued that day. Listening to Archie opened William's mind to the myriad extraordinary stories that were unfolding every day in the lives of ordinary people. In a blue-lined copybook, he wrote his favourites, 
and unwittingly began what would become a lifelong obsession with storytelling, domestic mysteries and the secret stranger's nurse. What surprised William most when he started working there himself was how little Archie had exaggerated. People send the strangest paraphernalia through the post. Incomprehensible and indefensible, sentimental and valuable, erotic and bizarre, alive and expired. In fact, it was the dead animals that so frequently found their way to this inner sanctum of the postal system that had inspired the dead letters depot name. A photo taken in 1937, the year it had opened, showed the original postmaster, Mr Frank Oliphant, holding a pheasant and hair aloft, with three rabbits stretched out on the table before him. By the time William had joined in 1979, it was a much more irregular occurrence, of course, but the name still endured. He still felt Archie's presence amid the exposed red brick walls of the depot, and some of the older detectives sometimes called William by his uncle's name. Their physical similarities were striking. Muddy brown curls, chestnut beards flecked with rust, the almond-shaped hazel eyes that flickered between shades of emerald green and cocoa, the bump in the nose of all wolf men. In a vault of football field proportions hidden below Shoreditch High Street, row upon row of the peculiar flotsam and jetsam of life awaited salvation. Pre-war toy soldiers, vinyl records, military memorabilia, astrology charts, paintings, pounds and pennies, wigs, musical instruments, fireworks, soap, cough mixture, uniforms, fur coats, boxes of buttons, chocolates, photo albums, porcelain teacups and saucers, teddy bears, medical samples, ceilings, weapons, laundry, fossils, dentures, feathers, gardening tools, books, books, books. Copious myths and legends passed from one colleague to another. Stories of the once lost, but now found. Please tell me they got you to read the audiobook. Uh, no, I did a bit of the audiobook. Oh, you did? Um, Rupert Penry Jones did the um, main thing, and then I read out the letters from Winter, who's writing to her great love. And um, I really regretted it when I heard how amazing Rupert was. No, no, never regretted it. Regret. <laughs> Mind you, say a good reader can make a huge difference. My last two were both read by Rula Lenska, and, and it's just, you just listen to it in awe. Firstly, yeah. how do they keep going? It takes so long, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, listen, it was an amazing thing, actually, hearing the audiobook being recorded. It sort of felt like it wasn't my book anymore in, in the best possible way. It was like it had taken on a life of its own. But when I heard Rupert performing it, as opposed to me just reading it out quietly into That's the microphone, the point, it was a bit it? of a shock. That's the point. They do a performance, don't they? <laughs> One of the things I love about it that, that you read there, lists... Lists are yeah, just I'm a fantastic. Big fan of the list. yeah. yeah, lists in poems, lists in books, and that's a great list, isn't it? <laughs> well, I was just amazed you didn't stumble once. No, I mean I stumble over just trying to get a sentence out and say hello, oh. you know. But no. that's not yeah. my first time. Yeah, I was going to say you've probably done a few of these, haven't you? You've probably done a few of these. Yeah, and there are lots of good letters, lots of little. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Papadopoulos. So here's one. So I was thinking. This is a really big cheat because you're able to put in lots of tiny wee stories yeah. because, well, they're just random letters. They'll exactly. be all sorts of things. Yep. You don't have to kind of justify it. So and it, it kind of kept me going in the writing of it because if I felt a bit sort of stuck about how the whole big story was unfolding, I could sort of make myself feel better by going, oh, well, I'll just I'll write a letter. I'll just chuck in a letter. <laughs> yeah, right. Mr. Nice. Papadopoulos, <laughs> Mr. Papadopoulos, hope this letter makes its way to you before your wife gets a chance to intercept it. <laughs> Why must she always stand between us? It won't be long now until we can be together, I'm sure of it. Keep saving, as will I, and our time will come. In the meantime, I will blow you a kiss every day as I wait for my bus across from your shop. If the light is right, I can catch a glimpse of your white coat as you work. How I long to lay my head against that starched cotton once again and breathe in the smell of flour and dough from your skin. Until then, I remain your impatient love, Jay. Which, of course, didn't get delivered. No, but, do you know, it's interesting that there was two words in that, two words in that that make the whole thing go from fantasy to, oh, what's he been up to? And that's the once again. <laughs> Lay my head there once again. So Mr. Yes. Papadopoulos has been naughty, no, hasn't he? Oh, well, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. And, uh, well, let me have another one. Here's another one. Um, Piot, is that how you? Yeah. Mr. Piot, okay. Yeah. So Mr. Piot, um the fourth envelope had nothing at all written on it, but then this is inside. Mr. Piot, I return the, these leather gloves to you in addition to the pot of lilies, the oyster truffles and the silk star- scarf that I have already sent back. Please stop sending me these presents. It is entirely inappropriate and my husband is becoming increasingly furious. The connection you believe we share is entirely fictional and I have given you no encouragement. The next letter I write will be to the police. Sincerely, Mrs. Assumpta Llewellyn. 
And uh, but there were no gloves. Oh, the oh the parcel. Okay, no gloves. Somebody's nicked the gloves. And it's it's essential as well. I like it about the paper because one of the good things about mm. writing letters that I like is you have mm. an object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whether it's a postcard yeah. or a letter or something like that. And um, here he is. He's on his desk, digging amongst the papers on his desk. His fingers. This is William Wolfe now. His fingers brushed against an unusual texture, thick and soft with grooves. Oh, this is a significant thing. I've stumbled on it. Anyway, just like him. Thick with grooves, uh, thick and soft with grooves like old wallpaper. It was just as he imagined paper might have felt in days long ago when men on horseback carried letters through the night. When he manoeuvred the envelope out into the light, its colour surprised him. He had expected it to be ivory or brilliant white, a very elegant wedding invitation perhaps, but it was midnight blue. The colour just before blue becomes navy, the darkest, most mysterious shade on the spectrum and his favourite. The handwriting on the front consisted of curls and spirals, dramatic capitals, carefully crafted lowercase letters, all in a dripping silver ink. There were just three words, my great love. And he he held the envelope close to examine the grooves in the darkness of the pages and smelled the faintest trace of vanilla. Something stirred (laughs) inside him. I wonder what that is. And, And he kind of hides it away to read later. And that's then the central core of the story, these great love letters I couldn't quite work out what was going on <laughs> towards the end I can't, I'm not sure if I can really talk about this well don't really give it away mm. I can't give away it's, well, it was interesting how you ended it yes I suppose I, I, to what extent can we talk about this without giving it away I think the only thing I can say is that um, I'm a great believer in happy endings not always looking like you might expect them to Mm-hmm. And one of my ambitions for the novel was that I didn't want to impose a judgment on what he should do. Right. In the sense that, you know, there was a lot of people. I, it's been so interesting when I've gone to speak to, with book clubs who've read the book um, and people have lots of opinions <laughs> about yeah. the ending. I give more and of an opinion, except I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and also lots of um, thoughts about you know, whether it was appropriate for him ever to be pursuing this mysterious letter writer or, you know, actually. And then some people thinking that, well, his marriage was so far gone that actually he did the right thing, you know, by trying to dig his way out. And I think a lot of people, people obviously bring themselves and their own stories and their histories, you know, to the reading of the book, like we do with all books. And there's a lot of what if, what if. Exactly. Can't give up on what if. But um, but I guess I really wanted it to feel like if you were rooting for him, to to revive his marriage or if you were really needing to believe that there was hope for a second chance of love that um, you could get your wish with this book you know that there was no judgement about what was the right thing that's Mm. the uplift thing that's the uplift again isn't it maybe that's nice that's that's a nice uplifting message yeah I don't believe that love stories have to be eternal for them to have value no of course not so you know I really wanted it to feel like there was lots of ways that all the characters in this book could find a happy ending for themselves, even if they weren't in a configuration that uh, might have seemed obvious at the beginning. So true love doesn't have to be forever. No, I don't think so. Will that work as a slogan? I don't know. <laughs> might do. I'm not going to win any elections <laughs> with it, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea. Um, I think, yeah. um, do you know, I met a guy um, the other weekend, a guy called Trevor, and I thought, he... I, I, has he sprung out of this book? Hmm. I don't want to say too much about him to identify him. <laughs> he'll, he'll know who he is. It took a while into the conversation the first time I'd met him before he began to talk about his uh, cross-dressing and, you know, fabulous headdresses, big dresses. He's, I think he'll now know that you're talking about him. <laughs> I know, I suppose I don't want to identify him too, too much to everyone else. People going, oh, Trevor. I didn't realise that about Trevor. But anyway, so he's a firmly built guy, bald head, and then his alter ego is, you know, fabulous flamboyant costumes. And he frequented a club very like the one in this book mm. in East London. And I wondered, so what did you base that on? Because maybe it was the same one he used to go to. Well, it just was a product of my imagination, actually. It's a bit of a disappointing answer, I know. You see, this is a bit like, I feel like I'm the police and I you're know. going... 
um, I'm refusing to give anything away. I know. <laughs> I'm innocent. But it's um, I, I, in some ways I feel a bit guilty about this because I know that lots of people spend, lots of writers spend incredible amounts of time researching, but I just make it all up. <laughs> uh, that's not a bad thing. I mean, uh, we, we've talked about this before <laughs> on the show about the, the people who spend their it's entire time researching. Because researching is very seductive. It is so. And it's and great fun. But all the time you're researching, you're not writing. Exactly. And I just but don't But this is have, your first book, isn't it? That's the first one. And if I, if I had, I mean, any obstacle to, between me and the page, I would have taken it. So if I'd had to spend weeks and weeks and weeks in the British Library finding out how people dressed or whatever... I mean, I deliberately wrote it in this time period because it's in my living memory and I could just keep going, keep going, keep going and never have to stop and research. I mean, when you get into later drafts, you do, of course, you know, look into authenticating details yeah, to make yeah. sure that what you're saying is, is true. Um, but everything in it, I just made up from instinct mm. of what yeah. it might be like. You say it's your first book. Yeah. Is it your first first book? It's or the, because um, a lot of people, their first book that's published isn't necessarily the first thing they've, they've written. Yeah, it's not only my first book, it's the first thing I ever wrote. That's amazing. Well, and I So say have that, you avoided all the first-time writer pitfalls then? Well, um, I suppose I say that not because I think that, that I've done a remarkable thing, but just because I found it very discouraging <laughs> before I started writing when I would go and see writers on panels and they would say things like... I wrote my first short story when I was five and then I just kept going and before I published this book I had five others that I'd written and they never got anywhere and all I, all I kept thinking was you know if I if, if I have to write five books before I work out how to do this I'll never get there I'll never get to the end and and I sort of had this idea from listening to them that writers were born and not made and that if I was really a writer I would have been compelled to do this and I wouldn't have been able to avoid it and it would have just happened naturally and it wouldn't be a struggle for me and I wouldn't find it so hard to to build up the confidence to do it um, and it did and I just didn't have the nerve to find out if I could write I wanted I had this instinct that I really wanted to do it it was always percolating inside me, this will, but I couldn't get myself to sit down and try and do it. How did I you? I was so scared of it. In the end, I think the fear of never writing anything overcame the fear of not being able to do it. Something just sort of clicked. And my partner encouraged me. Um, I'd seen this ad that The Guardian were doing a six month workshop that was to help you write your first draft. And it felt obviously insanely ambitious for me to go from nothing to doing this workshop. But maybe because I've been a journalist before, the idea of having some kind of deadline on it really appealed to me, that it was sort of formal enough that it wouldn't be that easy for me to drop out. But it wasn't such a big deal as doing an MA or, you know, something where I'd be being mm. assessed or there was qualifications involved, you know. Which you currently so, are. <laughs> yeah, but that's not in creative writing, so it's no, a different no, no, thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent now, but I have this theory about girls in particular in school where uh, girls are rewarded for being perfect. And I think boys are rewarded for trying. You know, when you th when I think about my, say, my mixed primary school, all the girls were always being commended for being such good girls. Where And, so, and whereas... It would seem to be like the boys were always a bit more chaotic and mischievous and they were rewarded just for sitting down and having a go. Sometimes it was enough. Mm, yeah. And they kind of learned that actually they're going to get praised for trying things in a way that girls get praised for being perfect. And I think you end up going through school um, in the same way that girls get taught how to sing really sweetly in choirs. It stops them going for it in bands the way, you know, fellas are more inclined mm. to like, you know, we've listened to men singing in all sorts of different ways in bands our whole life. Um, yeah, badly. You know, but I mean, and just not being afraid to do it because we've seen so many men before do it. But anyway, that's sort of slightly off the point. I think for me, part of the reason why I'd always been really scared about trying to do the writing thing was that I was in this culture of, you know, exams and success and getting a job were all the things that we were measured by in a way that there wasn't a huge amount of chat in my school about your creative expression or like finding your artistic self or any mm. of that unless you exhibited in a really amazing talent like you could really draw or you could really play an instrument it wasn't something we ever really explored like I remember um, when we were doing the Leaving Cert doing our English exams our teacher telling us not to even consider doing the short story because it was too subjective and we mightn't get marks for it like we never even wrote one in the no. whole school programme. It was always the discursive essay where you could really build an argument. So I think 
all of that. It took me a long time and to not be afraid. And supposed to be about, oh, we love writing and stories and books and all well, that. Well, I, I, I think that is... Because you were at school in the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, and there is, I mean, obviously there's such an amazing tradition and culture of, um, you know, in Ireland. But it's all, that's also quite intimidating. And I know for me growing up, I didn't know anybody who was a writer, except for there was one poet from our town called Pat Bourne, who's an amazing Irish poet. And other than him, I had never met anybody who'd written a book. I didn't know anybody who was trying to write a book. You know, whoever was writing books, it was someone else, somewhere else, different from me. You know, it's and I think, I mean, it's a bit, become a bit of a cliche now, but you can't you, you can't be what you can't see. So the idea of someone kind of learning, like learning to write by writing wasn't something I saw. I only saw success. You know, you only see the end result and you hear people mm. talking about it who were already really successful and brilliant. So the gap between me and them seemed so far to, you know, to run. Um, but when I so when I saw this workshop, then I decided I would just go for it and see how it went. And I remember the first week we went into the class and everybody had to talk about what they had done before. And I was just you know, mortified because they were amazing people in my in my class who I'm still friends with, but they were people who had... But I know what you did. What did I do? You just made it up. I just made it up. <laughs> but they, um, you know, there were people there who, as like that, had written other books before and who were, you know, trying to do a new project or they were writing professionally or they'd published short stories or they had agents and all of this. And I remember we went home and we had uh, two weeks before we had to do a first submission of 5,000 words. And I spent 13 and a half days freaking out about how I was supposed to write these 5,000 words, having never written five words, other than I used to scribble random things in notebooks sometimes. And I made it until six o'clock on the Sunday night. And then my partner said to me, you're going to have to write something because it's going to be awful when everybody hands in their pages tomorrow night and you've nothing to show, even if you just write like two paragraphs about how it's so difficult for you to try and write the two paragraphs. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to stand and write something. Um, and I sat down and I wrote the first chapter of that book. Wow. So, you know, and it's, it's sort of, and I, I mean, I'd say, I'd tell that story because I meet people all the time. Do people not sort me. of hit you when you tell them that story? Then? Well, I mean, I think actually, I hope that it encourages people more so than anything because I meet people all the time at book events who say to me I've always wanted to write a book or I've always wanted to write but I just don't know how to get started and I think if I hadn't had that just particular motivation in that moment where I knew I was handing this thing up the next day I might never have started it was so hard for me to get going um once once you do get going for you did it come quite quickly then well once I got once I started it was never I, I, I was never became super confident that, oh, I can do this now. But I did learn that um, creativity only happens when you create the opportunity for it. So I did. That was the most amazing thing I learned out of the whole process that, I, again, I could spend 13 days before the next submission thinking I'm never going to be able to do this again. I've totally run out of steam. I have no idea where we're going. But then whenever I sat down and actually made myself start working, that's when the story would reveal itself to me. And um, I think that's a really important thing for people to know, because I think I thought there was something very mysterious or magical about the writing process before I started and that I would be visited upon by some muse or something. And maybe that happens to some people. I don't know. But for me, until I'm actually doing it, Nothing happens until you're sitting down. Until I'm sitting down and actually, I just write my way into the story. So you're, I mean, they talk a lot in in writing about people being pantsers or plotters. You know, flying oh, by the yeah. seat of your pants I'm or plotting. Oh yeah, I'm a total pantser. Yeah, I'm a total pantser. And and it's when I talk to people who aren't, they they say, well, how do you just sit down with a blank screen yeah. and just come up with the next? And I said, well, it 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 kind of just happens. And like you said, it's not it's not some sort of muse. It's not some sort of you know you don't think it's not drugs that we're taking or anything like that. It's just that you think. I mean, Neil Gaiman sums it up perfectly. We said, you sit down, you put one word after another, and things just start to coalesce. Yeah. And, and the the simplest way I can explain it to someone is that if you had to sit down and write a really complicated email to your boss, you could sit on a chair for two hours trying to compose it in your head, and it would be you wouldn't really work it out. It would be so difficult. But as soon as you sit down and actually start typing it, it becomes clear to you what it is you're trying to say. And for me, the creative writing bit is just an extension of that, except for you're just pulling out of your imagination fiction instead of fact. It's the same thing. Mm. It's actually not as half as mysterious as it 
I think it appears to be from the outside. So I'm, I'm basically on a bit of a thing to encourage everybody to try it if they have that instinct they want to do it because it kind of frightens me how easily I might never have done it. Mm. Well, this is exactly it. We'd be robbed of a wonderful book. <laughs> um, I mean, there's another analogy I've often heard, which is the difference between sculpture and model making. You know, sculpture is where you, you, you do all the plotting in your head. You do all the thinking about it. You look at this big lump of stone and then you start chipping away until you find the form in the stone that you visualise in your head. Or you get the modelling clay and you add a bit on, add mm. a bit on, smooth that bit in there, add a bit on, smooth a bit in there until you get, oh, that's a pleasing shape. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I'm much more the modelling clay. I know, <laughs> I'm I, much more the modelling clay. And I think, I, I mean, and some of my writer friends are amazing plotters and I find it so funny because, you know, one of my friends, she'll show me these Excel sheets she has and it'll be chapter one, seam on, paragraph one. I know. But for me, and I, so I, I don't think there's one system is better than the other, but for me, I find mm. that whenever I have any actual prescriptive work that I need to do, like, oh, I know I have to write a chapter about this or a scene about that, I find that's when my writing becomes the most perfunctory because I think of my journalism background. I start mm. sort of writing a brief, writing to brief instead of letting it kind of unravel. Yeah. So for me, I find that it kind of kills it for me a bit if, if I'm if I know what I'm going to so do. Tell exactly us a bit about your your journalism background. Um, well, it, I worked in broadcasting and RT for about seven or eight years, so. I suppose the writing that I was doing then was like much like you yourselves would do was writing scripts for broadcasters and like producing shows. And I guess I was working the muscle then, but in a different way. And I always loved the writing part. So I just always did kind of features, different journalism bits. And I do that now more so, which is great. Just doing um, uh, like, well, book reviews mostly, but then, you know, interviews and features, all of this artsy stuff. <laughs> And she's finally cracked. She's finally given in and had her first French I fancy. Have. I feel Yay. like I've earned it. Yeah, yeah. It's about time I did, I think. <laughs> yeah, and well, it's lemon one, I think. Oh, let's have a look here. I've had two, and now they've both got to unwrap it by the microphone now. <laughs> 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 uh, one, one that I want to slightly come back to the endings. So the ending you've got, there's ambiguity there. Mm-hmm. Some people like an ending that is completely clear. Yes. And are uncomfortable with ambiguity. They are. And having to think for themselves <laughs> a bit. Have you encountered that? I have. Um, it's always very entertaining for me when I go to, in particular when I go to book events or especially at book clubs where everybody's read the book. And everybody's always super nice and polite at the beginning. And then when they get to know me a bit and they realise that I'm not going to get upset, they tend to go for me about the ending. And it's amazing though because I usually have as many people who are delighted with the way the ending unfolds, as there are people who are frustrated, and I can usually talk them round. And in terms of, we're not talking about how it mm. ends, but I suppose that style of ending is not so common these days. Oh. Gosh, I'm not sure. I mean, for me, I just... It, it, it's it's quite refreshing not to be, I suppose, have everything laid out. Well, I just think life isn't like that. You know, there's no point in any of our lives where even where we think we're at the end of the story until it's the ultimate end of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we even know what 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 happens when you turn the page, and I sort of always loved when I am inhabiting the world of a novel to think that it's existing after I've stopped reading, and that things can still unfold. Mm. So um, I really didn't want to just wrap it all up in a bow, mm. and it felt anathema to the whole novel if I did that. So who do, who inspired you? I suppose or other writers, or when you were little. Well, when I was little, I think um, it was amazing because books were a big part of my childhood growing up. And my mother gave me all the classic novels she'd read when she was a little girl. And we talked about them. And that was an amazing thing because I don't ever remember a time in my life when books weren't the most important thing for me. And my sister Mary taught me how to read before I started school. So Your sister um, taught you? She did. And so she always says this is all thanks to her. And she was really annoyed that I didn't give her a bigger acknowledgement of that in my mm. credits at the back. So I'd have to do better she, after a chunk next of the time round. Chunk of your earnings, you know. Excuse me. So I guess like everybody, I the first book I remember being completely blown away by was The Enchanted Wood by Enid Blyton, which I know factored for a lot of kids in their childhood. And it kind of all started to me from there. And I never really stopped. I remember we had this sponsored readathon when I was in primary school. And over the summer, you got people to sponsor you for every book that you read um, to raise money for some charity. And I got cut off. 
because um, people had said they would give me a pound a book, which was so much money, like in the eighties. And you know, it was like six weeks in, and I'd read thirty books or something. And yeah, my mother yeah. was like, "That's it, that's yeah, it." Yeah, you yeah. know, they'd no idea what they were dealing yeah. with. You know, <laughs> so I was, um, you know, it was it was always the thing I loved to do most. And it's it's amazing how sometimes in life the things that you're slightly embarrassed about about yourself end up becoming the things that actually are the thing the most the best part of your well, life we, we speak to a older. lot of writers on here and and we ask them for little nuggets of advice we'll be asking for you for a mm. little nugget of advice a little bit later but we're often asking writers for little nuggets of advice and and one that comes up a lot of the time is is read Mm. Read, read, read. You get used to the shapes of words. You get your spelling gets better. You get used to the shapes of sentences and paragraphs and plots, and and that sort of thing. And and I I don't think I have ever met anyone who's been a successful writer who isn't also a voracious reader. I oh, know. I can't imagine how that. I can't imagine work. not reading. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine it at all. No, and Where I think it? when I mean definitely since I started writing, in the sense of especially after this book was published and I was writing the second book, it does change how you read. And now I've realised that the most amazing books in the world are the ones where I forget to read it analytically as mm. I'm reading it. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where I just get so lost and then I find myself going, oh, hold on, hold on. How did how did they do that time switch I there? I need to, look. I forgot, I forgot to, look. to take it in how that was all working. You know, and it's I like have the to best be. actors in films are the exactly. ones who suddenly think, oh, yes, it is yeah. Brad Pitt or it is whoever exactly. it happens to yeah. be. Yeah, well, yeah. at the back yeah. of this, there is an excerpt of your next one. I presume mm. it, this is still your next one. Yes. It called... Ooh, it doesn't well, say. It doesn't gosh, say. That's a Ooh. that's a big question at the moment because we haven't settled on a title. So, so it still does it does it still so start difficult. the way it starts here? It starts on Inishog. It does start where it starts there, but that mm. chapter has changed quite a bit. Okay. So it, it um I mean in essence it's still the same, but that was the first draft of it. So in some ways maybe it was a bit premature mm. us putting in the back, but it'll but give uh, people an so idea. You have I know your, what publishers are like. So your next <laughs> book is coming out next in year, in May next yeah. year. We're not sure what it's going to be called. Nope, I wish I did know. It's a big hot topic at the moment. Do you have any kind of, you know, top or top three options? Um, I do, but I think my publisher will have an absolute heart attack <laughs> because. Um, do you have a Do you have a, a, a nickname for it? Well, when or I was do you writing just call it, it book two? when when I was writing it, um, I was calling it Kintsugi, which is. Uh, the Japanese pottery where when vases are broken they repair mm. them with gold instead of a filament. Isn't it? I yeah. absolutely love so it. So they're most beautiful. they're more beautiful because of the fractures and the scars. Because of the damage, yeah. Yeah, than they were before. So I wanted to call the book Kintsugi, but um it wasn't uh, hugely a popular choice because <laughs> I think everyone. I can thought, kind of understand that, yeah. Unless you knew what Kintsugi was. See, I was thinking Kintsugi. Oh, that sounds like a, a village in but, the west of Ireland. But you could have you could have a a, a a title and still have a lovely picture of a bowl on the front, couldn't you, with the gold yeah. repairs? Yeah, but that I think uh, the other thing was people were afraid people would think it was actually about Japanese pottery. Uh, that you know it would get sort I of confusing. This was my, fir <laughs> my first book. My first the first book I wrote was a non-fiction book all about interconnectedness and I, I called it the six degrees of Rick Wakeman because wherever I whichever direction I seemed to go when I was following down a path I always bumped into Rick Wakeman <laughs> because you then find out that he was the guy playing piano on on Bowie's Life on Mars yeah. or you go down another path and he was sort of quite instrumental in starting comedy clubs in London you go down another path and you find out he's you know this that and the other and and now you're married uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, the point is, he was he he was married several times, and and but he, not to you, no. And his first it's, album, uh, and his first album was his first solo album was X Y Z Henry VIII, and I thought this is a nice title, Six, six yeah. Degrees of Rick Wakeman, and my publisher liked it. And then at the very last minute, we had to pull the title and get, call it something totally else because Rick Wakeman's management came on to me and said, "Listen, we're the best one in the world. It's lovely because Rick was going Rick was going right forward for me and everything." And um, at the very last minute, he said, "We can't because Rick's bringing out his." the first book of his memoirs at the same time and he's decided he's going to call it Grumpy Old Rockstar we're afraid that people will buy your book because that's got Rick Wakeman on the front and mm. his, book, his, his book hasn't so we're having to put an embargo oh. on using the name Rick Wakeman so we literally had to come up with a name off oh, the top of our heads before it went to print. And that I, is harsh. You didn't like the new name either. So. You even called your book after him, and he still wouldn't date you. No, he was all up for it. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite up for it. It was, it was the management, it was the publishers that were um, getting. A you, bit know, you were talking about, about um, reviewing. You review mm. other books now. That's you know part of your job, mm. I guess. So how awkward is it being a writer, as in? I'm, and, well, I'm, and you're going to have other books that are going to go out there, and you want people to love me, love me, be my, nice to my book. But in the well, meantime, I'm going to be very nasty well, about your book. I have to be book. honest, I only review books that I love. Uh -huh. 
I just give them back if I don't think it's for me. Because I think um, there's enough negativity out there. And I'd like to think the book and I just didn't get on. Fair enough. Because it wasn't, I wasn't the right reader for it or I wasn't the intended audience or I wasn't getting it. I always just give it the benefit of the doubt that, okay, there may be something going on here and I'm just not able to connect with it. So take it back, editor, and give it to somebody else who oh, will give which it Amazon back. reviewers would do that. <laughs> so then yeah. do you find yourself people saying, oh God, I must get them to give you my book. And you're thinking, they already have and I sent it back. So yeah, yeah, must yeah, do. Yeah, you, you just say nothing. Um, and so when I write a review, I'll still be really honest about it so it's not just that I'll do a puff piece on it but I'll review books where I feel I think that I can illuminate what the book is about in a considered way because I've really connected with it um, but so I suppose people writers can probably be very happy if they hear that I've reviewed it because it's I, <laughs> usually it means it's not going to be that, that bad yeah you know, it's going to be like 99% and I'll have some maybe like yeah. constructive thing in there that'll be basically just another way of saying I love something about it so um, I've no interest in doing a hatchet job in someone's book Do you read your reviews? Because I, I don't read no. reviews I deliberately don't read reviews and I keep telling people in writers groups and people I speak to I yeah. say, don't read the reviews because the, the worst thing in the world is when you get like you know your book comes out and bang the first hundred Amazon reviews goes up whatever If you're and, lucky uh, well, yeah, yeah. Be like, yeah, and and you get that one that's like one star, and that's the only one you fixate on. And then you find it someone who just says, "Well, I started reading this book. I got about ten pages in, and thought this isn't my sort of book." And they've given you one star, and you think, "Now that's a review of your reading and your I, taste. It's not a review of my book." I know, but you do fixate on it. So I've, I've said to people, "Don't read reviews." Yeah, I, I think um, I my, my agent said an amazing thing to me before the book ever came out, which is, "You have to decide whose opinion you're going to value." Exactly, that is you know? exactly it. And he said, "So if you've reached the stage with." the book where you know you've put your trust in me as your agent and your trust in your editor and whoever other readers that has given you feedback and you've done the best that you can at that point you can't let that be taken away by some random person who for whatever reason has decided to you know write you a bad review either because they genuinely think the book is the worst book they've ever read you know which people are very comfortable saying <laughs> worst book ever written um, or because they just didn't connect with it you yeah. know that it's madness that you would let it all be taken away like that exactly. so I sometimes kind of look like kind of from between you know like kind of sort of squint a bit at the screen and kind of glance and look down especially if it's in any of the broadsheets it's very hard because you sort of want to get the gist of it but I try and keep away as much as I can my partner reads them and he just reads out the good bits hmm. I think that's a very healthy attitude personally <laughs> do, do you write letters? I do so I mean I guess it's it'll do you write letters no to Ireland? I write letters. Yeah, I do. I write the letters. Price is just incredible. It's about one pound thirty for a, a stamp for a postcard to Ireland. Really? Or anywhere it is. else it's in, very in Europe? Europe. And I think, mad. I, and I think there's a big thing as well about Christmas cards for the same reason. You know, there are still lots of generations of people who aren't online and for whom Christmas cards were a lifeline in terms of keeping connected. And um, it's so expensive. The cost of postage. It's I thought they were. He was making fun of me or something, saying like one pound thirty to post a postcard out of the UK. I know. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, no, People should write letters, though. There, there's yeah. something lovely about writing. Oh, um, now, is. this comes back to your book again. One of the things that, one of the things that's feel good about it is the nostalgia thing. Nostalgia yeah. is. Nostalgia is the reason why, as we were saying earlier, you know, people love Call the Midwives. It's the reason why people love Downton Abbey, even though they didn't live in that era. Mm. There's something. There, there's elements of watching that that they can sort of relate to. You mm. know, oh, isn't it a shame we don't do that anymore? Or, wasn't it lovely when we well, did that? I actually think that letters might make a comeback. I'm on a bit of a revolution to try and inspire people to write more letters. I think we're really missing these tangible, physical things in our lives, you know, gathering the kind of ephemera that proves that we really exist. And it kind of breaks my heart that there are generations of people who will never know that thrill of a letter landing on your mat and your name written in the handwriting mm. of someone who loves you. I mean, I don't think there's any probably more exciting feeling in the whole world than seeing that. And I think we're really missing that. And as we've moved into this digital age where we can communicate so efficiently and so economically, it's become so disposable that I think our communication has become disposable. And we've really lost that way of connecting with each other that I think was really profound. Mm. I mean, people, if you think about what you would say to one of your parents in a letter, there are probably things you would never say in person, especially, you know, when something I think happens when you sit down to write a letter in that you it reveals to you what it is you need to say. And it's in that kind of act of meditation 
of sitting and writing and accessing your kind of deeper subconscious self through the letter writing that things become clear to you in a way that will never happen when you're sending a text message and often can't happen in person. So I think we're really losing that that other way kind of, of connecting. Same when you're writing a book as well. You, yeah, you I guess, get to nail I guess things so. to the page that you probably would never say out loud. Yeah, you? exactly. The last and letter I, I wrote was it. to someone serving with the Royal Fleet Auxiliary. So I sent him a letter and a book. So we got the best of both worlds. <laughs> and I thought, man. And he still nice. wouldn't date you. If he, and he still <laughs> wouldn't date me. <laughs> so I can, banish your Rick So if he's, if he's <laughs> on a boat out in the Gulf of um, Persian Gulf or something, and that's a nice place to get a letter. Yeah, I think. definitely. Quite a boring letter. Did he write say. back? Well, he's probably only just got it. Oh, okay. I don't know if they're allowed to write back well. anyway, because maybe that's a security risk. I don't I, know. I've, I just I've got, imagine I've it's... I've got a nice little collection at home of, of postcards that my granddad, who was from the Republic, but moved to Belfast when he was quite young and lied about where he'd been born so he could join the Navy during the war, because, <laughs> of course, the Republic was neutral at the time. Um, and he used to send postcards back to his... Um, Fiance, who was my grandmother, and I've got those postcards, oh, and amazing. they're they're quite often a little bit rushed, and sometimes it's quite mm. hard to read some of it. But it's the fact that he would keep sending it back, and he keeps yeah, sending absolutely. these things, and it's and I said that uh, that's tangible, as you say, it's something yeah, you can definitely. Hold in your hand. And what's going to happen now at the end of our time? We'll just have what a hard drive somewhere with all the emails we sent in it. I mean, that's grim, isn't it? It is it grim. Is. Well, we need a special discounted postage for personal letters. Yeah, maybe. But there will be something else. I mean, my, my, my granddaughter, who can sometimes come up with some quite interesting ideas. She's 14. Um, she said, said to me the other day, said, Grampy, if there's ever a World War Three, it's going to be weird because we're going to be able to talk to the enemy on emails and things like this and on Facebook. And I thought... <laughs> <laughs> that's really weird. Yeah, let's say we suddenly for interesting. some, some yeah. bizarre idea suddenly we're at war with France. And the fact that you'll be able to go onto Facebook and mm. talk to French people who maybe are opposed to the war the same as you are. And mm. things like this. That's quite mm. weird because yeah. that's something that's never happened before. That's um, something that yeah. we've opened up. That, I, that's, that's a very interesting idea. Yeah, isn't mm. it? She is clever. Two things I want to get to because we're coming mm. near the end. We kind of do a competition, but maybe it, won't, it might not be a competition. What might yeah, it be? Yeah, we sort of... A sort of um, well, we were a saying brain sort of like teaser a, or something. A, a brain teaser, a, a question mm. for people to go. So we want a, a question for listeners. So have a think of a question for listeners. Oh, I have one. I have a favourite table quiz question. Oh, go, go for it then. Yeah. So, um, in Pride and Prejudice, everybody loves Mr. Darcy, but what is Mr. Darcy's first name? Oh, that's a good one. What is what is Mr. Darcy's first name? And is mm. it in that book? Or is it in somebody else's book? Oh, it's definitely no, it's in, the book. in it's Pride in the book. and Prejudice, yeah. Oh, okay. But it's just everybody talks about Mr. Darcy, but no one knows what his first name is. Brian Darcy, and he's a priest. My wife. Father Brian she's, Darcy. She's read it 50 <laughs> times. It's her favourite book. Okay. <laughs> she'll know, she'll know. Right, and the other work? thing I want to ask about... That works great. Yeah, that's grand, is clowns. <gasps> Nothing so, scarier than clowns. Ah, well, you see, <gasps> Steve, <laughs> you, you had a clown... But yeah, there's a problem with his yeah. name. This um, is for your next my, book. My next novel, um, one of the central <laughs> sort of plot devices is a geriatric circus. It's a circus wow. that's plodding towards the grave where they, they don't know how to do anything else, but so they just keep going, even though no one wants to have them in their town anymore, no one wants to do anything like this. And um, there's a, a, a Polish clown in the, um, in the circus who I first had the idea for this book back in the 80s, and it started as a short story way back then, but it's now been expanded into an entire novel. And um, and I've always called him Bozo the Clown. It's always been Bozo the Clown all the way through. And then now that the book is looking... It's going to be my next published mm. book. Now that that's the case, I find I can't use Bozo because mm. there was a very popular television clown in America um, called Bozo the Clown, who actually inspired Krusty the Clown and Ronald McDonald. Um, as a result, I can't use it. So I had a little... Not a competition as such, but I asked potential readers through my blog mm. basically to give me names for the, the clown, new names for the clown. And they came up with some fantastic ones, some absolutely brilliant ones. But the one we ended up with was Glupi, G-L-U-P-I, which is the Polish and also incidentally the Russian for stupid, which I love. Oh. What a great name, Glupi the Clown. Glupi the Clown. Well, I think oh. people should be being nicer to clowns. And it's it's really weird. If, if you, someone, I was reading something about this not so long ago, that someone tracked back to try and find out when we became scared of clowns. Because mm. they're always a part of people's childhoods. And things like. And I always thought they were dodgy. Yeah, no, it, dodgy all, it all seems, well, we say that, but it all seems to go back to... Stephen King and it. No, 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 no. Long before that clown. But was it? 
Yeah, because I've never even seen it Neither or read I. it. But no, they're always terrifying. I was going to suggest you call him Mr. Frown. Mr. Frown. <laughs> the clown. But, um, it's a good name. Oh, there was another one you had, what, Naughty... Oh, yeah, Naughty Bertram was someone's Naughty suggestion. Bertram. Naughty Bertram's a great, great name. Mm, yeah, no, there's yes. nothing scarier Call the police. than clowns. Oh. See, I don't find them scary at all. I don't understand why people are scared of them. It's, mind you, I don't understand why people are scared of spiders either. But oh, I, they always struck me as bullies, actually. Really? Yeah, and quite nasty. Yeah, dragging people out, humiliating them. But they were an absolute... Abusing their power. They were an absolute part of circuses. Mm. I mean, you watch Kids in the Circus in the 1950s, you watch video of it, like British Pathé, the kids are laughing their heads off, they love them. Mm, there's something very sinister as well about painting on a smile because it implies that what's underneath it isn't happy. Ah, that's kind of the Grimaldi story, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. That'd be nasty. Interesting. And other news. I have finally reached 70%. I know you have, yeah, yeah, well done. Funding for my book, Blackwater Town. Crowdfunding his first book. uh, So it's a long process. It is. It's hard work. I've done it myself. But good, because people I don't even know sometimes do it. So Mm. 70%, hurrah. I'll share it to my masses of hundreds of social media followers. Well, (laughs) not going to matter there. Happy days, happy days. It's very good, I've read it. It's a very good book. And... uh, (laughs) And well, I guess we're coming to that. I feel we should kind of end ambiguously. I'm not sure how we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so no one knows exactly what happened. Well, Maybe we'll, we could we'll just edit say, in an explosion at this point or, or something or, and people will never know what happened. Or I could just say, we'll just take a break. And then just never come back. That's and right. then not come back. So, oh my God, why have you got that axe? Ah! <laughs> There's someone knocking at the door. They don't look friendly. <gasps> it's a clown. <laughs> Helen, Until the next time. So yeah. Thanks ever so much for coming Aww, in, Helen. Thanks so much for having it's, me. It's been, it's been great. great. It's been wonderful. Who have you been? I've been Stephen Colgan, <laughs> otherwise known as Gloopy the Clown or <laughs> Naughty Bertram the Clown. Yeah. And I've been Paul Waters, and we've been hearing about The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, which is really worth reading, by Helen Cullen. Thank you very much for coming Aww, in. Thanks for having me. Until the next time, you've been listening to We'd Like a Word. We'd Like a Word.